You're listening to the Boots About Business podcast. We share stories from military veterans that have transitioned to the world of business. On the show, you'll hear conversations with business leaders, executives, and entrepreneurs that all started their careers wearing boots in the service of the U.S. Armed Forces. This podcast is equal parts about sharing great stories, helping veterans, helping businesses, and fostering a greater understanding of the value veterans can bring to business. And welcome, everybody, to episode number 20 of the Boots About Business podcast. I am your host, Frank Strong, and here with us today is Nathan Iglesias. Nathan joined the California Army National Guard and at the same time works for Google in strategy and operations. It was around Veterans Day. I saw him featured on some Google promotions about veterans working for the company, and I reached out to him. He's a really interesting guy. I think listeners are going to really enjoy this one. Nathan, welcome to the show, sir. Hi, Frank. Thanks so much for that. I appreciate the welcome and intro. Really quickly, just so you know, all of my comments, my opinions, my beliefs, they are mine only. They do not represent that of the military or California or Google or anyone else. They are just mine. Fair enough. We're going to pin everything on you, Nathan. Hey, we always get right down to business. And so the first question is, what caused you to join? I guess you joined the Army National Guard, the California National Guard. What was the motivation? So I joined, I technically joined the Guard in 2002. Uh, I was actually in college and it was right after 9-11 had occurred. Mm -hmm. And I was just pretty motivated. I went to school in Santa Clara University and we actually had a student that was on one of the planes. The planes were coming to from the East Coast to the West Coast and being in San Jose, it was just really felt and it was very personal. And so I felt the need to serve. And so I was excited to join ROTC and, and learn more about, you know, different ways to get back to the country. Mm-hmm. So you went to the ROTC program and then when you graduated college, I guess you were ex- accessed into the California Guard or Active Army or yes. how did that work? So the way it works is I was what's called dual status when I was in college. I was in the California Guard, but then I was also a college student. When I graduated, I got my commission same day, and then I was fully assessed as a second lieutenant into the California National Guard. However, my experience for the subsequent five, six years wasn't that of a guardsman at all. It was, as you know, times were very, very busy, and I was activated almost nonstop at that point. Yeah, So, and you went in in 2003, you said? 2004. 2004. So the op tempo was real high. We we had operations going on in two theaters in Iraq and Afghanistan. And you, what was your job? So I was an intel officer. And the first opportunity I had was we knew that California was going to be sending teams over that would embed with the Afghan National Army and they would help train their teams. Mm-hmm. And so I had an opportunity to attend the Defense Language Institute in Monterey and learn Dari. Dari is spoken in Afghanistan. So I was at the DLI for a year, uh, learning the language every day, reading, writing, studying, listening with native speakers, all in preparation for a deployment to Afghanistan. Uh huh. So motivation, obviously patriotism and the tragedy that hit us on that day. And you take a job in Intel, you learn or at least study a language that is in high demand and boom, you're off. And you went for, you know, normally a guard guy goes in, they get trained, they come home, they do their weekend drills. And, you know, one week a month, two weeks a year, your experience was different. Tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, so what you just described is definitely the commercial. And uh, I thought that that's <laughs> what I was signing up for. <laughs> However, when I, you know, first joined getting the opportunity to go to language school, um, that was pretty unique for an officer to get to do. And so I was really, really excited to do that. And then the opportunities just, you know, just kept coming. And then, you know, I had the choice to either stay involved or cut ties from that active service. But the truth is, it was challenging. I loved the camaraderie. I really, really felt proud wearing the uniform. And then when I looked at my other buddies who had taken normal jobs out of college on the civilian side, 
I just couldn't imagine wanting to do the type of stuff that they were doing. What I was doing just felt so much more interesting. Yeah. 9-11 was really a you know landmark, I don't know if that's the right term, benchmark turning point for the Guard and Reserve where that both organizations transformed from this reserve unit that they would call if all things went out to an operational reserve who were going all the time. And I think, did you already say this? Did it, and I didn't miss it where we were talking beforehand. When you signed up and started from training to the end of your deployments was six continuous years, right? Correct. Yeah, so you were going a whole lot. So among the special places you went, is there you know one or two that stand out for you that you can talk about today? Oh, for sure. I mean, the I loved my time in Afghanistan. Having the language capability, it defined my time. When I first went over there, I was in Jalalabad which isn't known in the east of Afghanistan. It's not known for Dari. It's much more known for Pashtun. Uh But Dari is still one of the official languages of the country and also of the military. And so when I got to pair up with my team, the Afghan team, it was just really exciting to work with them in their language. Um, It was a different experience. Being able to have very candid conversations without having an interpreter with it defined kind of like the excitement of the period. And I got to be included in a lot of things that otherwise an intel officer wouldn't be included. I remember specifically at one point I was in an Afghan intel briefing. It was just all Afghan officers. And then the uh, head of Afghanistan's military came in and he starts speaking and then he stops and he looks at me and he says, what are you doing here? And then I respond and I stand up and say, sir, in Dari, you know, I speak Dari, I can understand you. And then he responded back with, you can understand me? And I said, yes, sir, I can understand you. He said, oh, okay, well, great, stay. But they weren't used to it. And it created a really a strong dynamic with the partners that I worked with because they saw a different level of commitment. And I knew that I, I was fortunate in getting to learn that language. So that was one really exciting place was working outside of Jalalabad. And the other one was working uh, down in, in Urizgan. I worked with um, a SEAL team as an army officer. I embedded with them and I provided support to their uh, for their human intelligence type operations. Mm-hmm. And that was you know, also thrilling and exciting because that team is unsurprisingly very professional. They are a performance-oriented organization to the nth degree. <laughs> and so getting to support, I knew that I was, it was a privilege and I took it as such. So both of those opportunities, I those are things that I can reminisce about. And, you know, tons of hard days, but really, really positive memories. Yeah, many years from now, when you're telling your grandchildren what you did in the war, you know, you did some stuff. That's really interesting, the comments around learning the language. I was going to ask you, as you started to bring that up, if you were able to make like a greater connection or a better connection to them because you're speaking in their language. I know in my travels around the world, even if you take the time to just even learn some of the present pleasantries and greetings, it's just so much more appreciated because Americans never really take that extra effort. I think it's true. I think that the Afghans don't expect Americans to speak their language. And I think that they took it as an honor. And then I also have to tell them, I ended up being like their personal Google. And this is before I worked for (laughs) Google because they would feel comfortable asking me questions about the world that they didn't really want to ask others. So they asked me, you know, are there Muslims in the United States? Do you have mosques there? Do you, you know, do Christians, you know, what do they think about this? And they were asking me a bunch Mm -hmm. of questions that would otherwise have been super personal and confidential, but they confided in me and that, that just the relationship of trust. And it just goes to show, I mean, that's really crazy that they wouldn't ask that question to somebody else because they have to basically tell two people, right? An interpreter and then the interpreter translates it and it may not get translated in the right, in the right way. And then, you know, they all speak different dialects and some people have a, you know, an, an angry bent for someone else and the translation doesn't quite come through as they intended. So it's really interesting to hear them ask really candid questions about whether or not we have Muslims in America. Of course we do. Of course we have mosques, right? And that must go a whole lot further to solidifying the relationship that you have with them, which is what it's really about. I think there's one thing our army learned. It's that, 
you know, in, in those last two wars is that sometimes you can fight and it's not all kinetic operations. Some of these, you know, civil affairish type engagements really matter. I typically ask people what their worst day in uniform, what their best day was. I wonder if there is there, there's a lot of good days. There's a lot of bad days. There's a lot of good days. What was one of the rough days that stand out in your mind? Sure. So interestingly, the roughest day in uniform wasn't in a combat theater. It was actually more recently. It was when I was supporting the COVID response. I was activated from March through June with the California National Guard. And the reason it was so rough is we were the very first unit to be activated in California. And we were trying to develop mm-hmm. situational awareness. And on the intel side, we're trying to do some analysis to provide support to the state leaders, to provide support to county leaders, You know, trying to be helpful. But it was so tough because in the past, when I put on my uniform, and if I'm going to be thinking about like, fighting an enemy. It's always been on foreign soil. And I've never had to worry about my loved ones, my family, my friends. Um, And all of a sudden, the more I learned about COVID and the more research that my team did, the more I realized that there was a risk and there were a ton of unknowns and just all of that ambiguity and that perceived threat. I felt like I couldn't protect the ones that I loved. And that was one of the reasons why I put on the uniform. I feel so many people wear the uniform to protect the institutions, the people in our beliefs and in our freedoms. And this is something that I couldn't protect people from, really. And that was tough. Yeah, fighting a virus here on the homeland. That's interesting. Before we get into the best day, it's probably a a good point to just pause. And for people that don't understand, maybe briefly explain the kind of dual mission that guard people have, right? Every state has their own guard. What are the two missions that they have? And this is what makes the National Guard unique. So the National Guard, it's funded by both the federal government and the state government, and we have a dual mission as well. Our federal mission is we're meant to be prepared to fight and win the nation's war and support you know, our active duty brethren and any other forces within the United States, other services as well. But we also have a state mission, and that state mission is to provide support to the governor and the state government. And that could be for you know disaster relief. If there is a massive earthquake in Los Angeles, uh, Mm -hmm. we are an organization. We've got logistics down. We've got, you know, we're a large organization with a lot of capability. We are a natural owner that can help support um, a recovery. California probably, as everyone knows, was on fire this year. And the the Guard is one of the many assets that the government activates in response to that type of natural disaster. So we provide support to that as well. So it's meant to be kind of like a jack of all trades. Honestly, I I feel like the guard is meant to sort of like the firefighter, you know, like, well, call them, they'll have to find a way to solve it if it's a problem. Yeah, it's so true. It's amazing that you signed up for the guard thinking you're going to be a guard guy, spent the first six years on basically on active duty. And then you come home and you're getting, you know, and you, you started a civilian career, but you're also getting called up for COVID, for wildfires and other catastrophes that happened overseas, or excuse me, in the in California. You know, I had a similar experience. We came home from a deployment, and I belonged to the Maryland National Guard at the time, and we got put on this thing called National Guard Reaction Force. And, uh, you know, it was, nobody had ever done it before. It was kind of this new thing. It's supposed to be able to put, you know, a company of soldiers somewhere downtown D.C. within 24 hours. Right. And then there was a larger echelons to follow on in certain time limits. And no one had ever qualified this thing. So, we, uh, you know, I was the battalion S3. We just had to make up this training program and try to get folks the training they needed to sign off on a qualification. But then, then you're on call all the time, you know, and I was like, man, we just got off a deployment. But it speaks to how remarkable I think guard people are, the commitment that they have. You're about to say everything you're saying about and then you're on call. Like yeah. I am brought on duty once a month for a weekend on average. 
but that's just formally. There's so much more that is really required to give to be successful. And yeah, when you first join, maybe when you're wearing like a fuzzy patch, no rank, and I don't mean that in a rude way at all, mm-hmm. that the one weekend a month can work. But then as you gain rank on the NCO side, on the warrant officer side, on the officer side, doesn't matter. You, yeah. as you become a leader. One weekend a month, two weeks a year is a farce. That's okay because you know we we don't join. You know, like in the military, we're not, I think we're accustomed to sacrificing and we're also a bit proud of the fact that we sacrifice and that it is hard. I mean, it's something that we earn. So even though that status of being on duty, it is a burden, but it's also like a burden that we're proud to get to do. Yeah. So let me ask you, um, we're going to dig into some of that stuff here in a minute, but let me ask you, I didn't ask about your best day. Sure. And I always want to f- finish that question with a happy note, right? What, sure. what's, what's some of your best days in uniform? So I think that my best day in uniform was when I had the revelation with my Afghan Intel counterpart of what was necessary to um, have them produce a daily intelligence summary. When I first went to Afghanistan, every Intel officer is, their baby is their intelligence summary. It's just what they produce on a daily basis. And it's what's meant, it, it captures all of the work of the team. And it's meant to keep um, all the leaders in the battle space apprised of what's going on so they can make the best decisions. And for the life of me, I could not convince my counterpart to do what I was telling him to do. And if you hear how I just phrased that, that's exactly what I was doing wrong. I, I This was such a humbling event. I mean, I was a young captain, young, yeah. human, li- limited life experience, talking to another Afghan captain who's like lived in a combat zone his entire life. He survived. Yeah. And I, it wasn't until we were having a very honest conversation and he started giving me live feedback about, you know, like, we're not going to maintain this after you leave. Why do you want us to do this now? And then I was like, oh, well, this is what I'm trying to achieve, the results. I don't really care about the product. I just care about the results. How would you like to go about doing that? And he presented an alternative. And it wasn't one that we would do in our service, but it doesn't matter because it was one that works with their systems, their culture, the way that they communicate and what they value. And so it was such a learning event because when you're told, all right, Captain, you're going to go over there and you're going to teach them how to do Intel, it's the wrong tone. What it really should have been is, hey, go over there, partner with them, help them where you can, but then also be open-minded to help them adopt what our best practices are that'll work for them so that they can be more successful. That would have been like the better way of framing it. But when I realized that from then on, every day that I would go over to his shop and his team would already have it prepared. And then they started giving me intelligence, like their version of intelligence summaries. And I was able to add that into my briefings, which was a really good value add for Intel on the US side. So it was a really exciting step forward. And, and it's probably my best in uniform because it's just something that has uh, influenced how I operate henceforth. Mm-hmm. That's an awesome story. When you think back about those things, you know, what you learned to become a, an MI officer, the leadership experience in uniform, the, you know, learning another language, assimilating a culture, being able to connect with people in another country, you know, helping people to find their own way to do things in a way that will be sustained, sustainable after they leave. How do all of those skills and things that you collected, how have those helped your business career? So I think there's several things. And for anyone who wears a uniform, it's something that you can't see on yourself. It's something that other people identify on you. And I think one of that is, is the sense of a bit of moral courage of calling things out. So I think in specifically being an intel officer, and I, I can't speak to other branches, but they'll probably say the same. But if you're in a combat zone, you quickly lose the luxury of not sharing your opinion. If you keep it to yourself and you think you know that you've got a valid point or opinion, not sharing it could have implications for your colleagues' lives, could have implications for you know innocent Afghans' lives, for other people. 
And so you're charged with being morally courageous and in not agreeing. I love the fact that in the military, a lot of the conversations that we would have would be lively. They would be, there's that camaraderie. You, you're comfortable poking jabs at each other. Mm-hmm. And you're comfortable saying, no, that makes absolutely no sense to me. And it's not taken personally. Right. It's actually, you have full faith and belief that people are just, we're all on the same team and we want the best outcome. Yeah. That's something when I joined the civilian world, I assumed it was the same. And I honestly, I don't think it's the same. I think that military mm-hmm. people assume it is, but it's not necessarily the case because people are thinking of their career. They're thinking of their next moves. And so sometimes that means that moral courage is sort of backburnered for the purpose of doing what's right for me, right for number one first. I don't think that military people adopt that. I think that they stay true to themselves of my commitment is to this team, to this mission. And so I'm going to help this business and my teammates be successful, irrespective of what that what the outcomes might be for me. So that's one thing that I think has been super helpful. Another, I think, is um, also just having a sense of curiosity and humility. Military people, as you know, constantly changing jobs. So you never yeah. really get the second they think you're going to get good at your job, you're moved. Yeah. So we're really comfortable being in a learning environment. Right. What I've seen on the civilian side is people will get into a role that they're good at and then they'll stay there. Because they're good at it. But there's a risk with that. So for instance, in Google, obviously we're an innovation company and the death knell of innovation is confidence. And what I mean by that is when you think you have the right answer and when you stop being curious and when you stop being on that learning journey, then someone else is going to take over. So even in my current roles now, I've never stayed in the same role for more than a year or two. And that just keeps me, you know... Levels, you know, always eating that humble cake because there's so much that I don't know. I'm comfortable saying I don't know. Um, And then also the second I start thinking I do know the answers, I know that I might be a hindrance because I'm going to shut things down that realistically might need to be evaluated further. So that's, I think, a, a huge value add, especially in any space that requires innovation and creativity. Yeah, I love this. I especially love the point, your first point, because it conjures up the the recollection of a phrase we use called wargaming, which I think is actually a very useful tool in business. Like in the military, it gives you to say, well, let's wargame that a little bit. And it almost like gives you the cultural okay to publicly disagree with people and not offend you know, your superiors. But just to, to point something out, if, if we can find a way to bring that same framework to business, then it doesn't come off as you know a slight and it's more of a team-oriented discussion to find a better solution as opposed to a disagreement. I completely agree. So how did you wind up at Google? You signed up and uh, you got deployed. You're basically gone for six years and you come home and you're like, gosh, now I got to do something with that degree. You've been on basically on active duty this whole time. Were you always going to go into technology? How did you stumble into Google? So when I came back from my first mobilization, it was 2009. I went to business school. And I went to business school because I didn't want to be pigeonholed in the Intel community. Like I liked Intel a lot, but I wanted it to be that. I wanted it to be something that was a passion and that I liked. And I didn't want that mm-hmm. to be the industry that I supported on the civilian side. So I went to business school to learn about the language of business, to learn about the different strategies, and to essentially get the qualifications to have an interview and to, um, to network with the right people to make those connections. So after I finished business school, I had one more deployment to Afghanistan that was due because I still had a commitment. Mm-hmm. And when I returned, that's when I started looking at jobs. I knew that I was interested in strategy. I didn't know that I was interested in tech. I actually, the job that I wanted to take was in Hawaii. It was working for Hawaiian Airlines in their strategy section. And my boss would have been a former chief of staff for the um, PACOM. 
So that was really exciting because he had just retired. Navy guy, super smart, very clever, very capable. But then for other reasons, to include family reasons in the Bay Area, I ended up going to Google. And and the way that I even found out about Google is I received a phone call from a sourcer who had found my profile on LinkedIn. And they were looking for someone who had an MBA and who was a military officer. They wanted the leadership conditioning and and mentorship of some of a military officer. And they also wanted someone with an MBA to be a, a lead, one of the groups in the Bay Area. And so I talked with them. I had no idea really what one would do in Google if you're not mm-hmm. in software engineering. And, and this is also a really good thing to point out. When you tell someone that you're in the army and they're like, oh, so you, you shoot guns. You're like, yeah. the army's so much bigger than that. You know, yeah. so we do shoot guns, but there's so many different jobs. It's such a large organization that we have logistics, we have legal support, there's medical, there's intel, there's finance. It's all of the components of any large organization that exists in the army. Pretty much also exist at Google. We don't shoot things at Google, but thankfully, but all of the other components do exist. And so that was part of my learning as well. When I talked with my recruiter to see, hey, you know, there's, there's all these other fields. You don't have to be a whiz in technology. You don't have to be able to code. You don't have to have a computer science background. We still need this kind of stuff. So that's what brought me to Google. Mm-hmm. So th- this is a recruit. The recruiter worked for Google or was at least contracted by them to go out specifically to find junior military officers and bring them in. Well, this person, so what recruiters do is they have a strategy for you know how they're going to fill a pipeline that, that a hiring manager will agree to. And the hiring manager, in this particular instance, they knew that the hiring manager liked people with military backgrounds. And they knew that the other requirements had to do with MBA as well. So when they came across my profile, he thought, you know, I I could be a fit. So I was screened by who was also then my hiring manager. And this gentleman, tremendous respect for him, Greg Garrison. He's the one that brought me to Google. But he sold me on it. And he his uh, father had also served in the military. And I believe his mom did as well. And he had a lot of respect for those that do serve. And he wanted someone who would be that he could count on because he uh, had relocated from the Bay Area to Austin, Texas. And so he wanted this leader to be in the Bay Area and someone he could work with and trust. And that's that was what he was looking for. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's great. And then once you get to Google, you, you kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, but how many hours do you think you put into the guard, you know, on your own time, not not on the weekends, not on training, but just on your own time? How many hours a week would you say you put into guard duty? It's interesting. So there's, I think I'd have to think through the types of work that I do. So I have like, obviously like checking emails, staying on top of that is at least an mm-hmm. hour. Then I have my my soldiers that I'm working on individual programs with. I have a soldier who I'm also very proud of, has been struggling, got injured in, in an accident, has been struggling to pass her PT test. And so we are accountability partners. And so we will message each other asking about push-ups, sit-ups, runs, but that's also a commitment as well. Then there are meetings. And then there's also my just my military education that I have to stay on as well. In order for me just to stay in the service, yeah. I have to pass my intermediate level education, yeah. which requires, that's an absurd amount of time. I don't know if I can should be saying that, but like I think any other, ma- so I'm a major and I think any other major will say that ILE, intermediate level education is very time consuming. And that's not even part of my drill. It's just, um, yeah. so I'd say and you don't get paid for it or nothing. It's just, yeah. I, yeah. I think we can get retirement points, but the, but even that, so then you have to file the paperwork, but I'd say probably it would flex between three to maybe three to seven hours a week at the max. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that's about right. So that's a lot of extra time in addition to work. 
I wanted to ask you that in order to set up the next one is like, how do you find the balance? What's Google's role in kind of balancing when you're trying to juggle your responsibilities between the guard and your civilian employer? So that's a great question. I think that balance isn't, for me at least, it isn't about having a job that consumes a lot and also the guard. It's just about passions. And so I do have a passion for the guard. So that takes up time and space that might be devoted to something else. My job with Google, it's pretty exhausting, but that's also the role I have is I'm in a a startup-like part of the company. And Mm -hmm. so wearing a lot of hats, a lot of analysis that hasn't been done before that needs to be done. So that takes up a lot of time. When it comes to balancing, I do find it to be challenging. I don't want to pretend that it's not. I do find that there's a lot of hours worked, but at the same time, you don't really notice the time go by when you do enjoy it. And the challenges are um, they're stimulating because I know what the path is to get the solution. Sometimes you just have to drudge yourself through to get that. You know, the work yeah. has to be done. Your hands have to get dirty. Sometimes it's going to be a late night. Plus with my team at Google, I have my partners are in India, in Manila, and I work with people also in Europe. So the timing of our of our meetings can just be also a bit bananas it's yeah it's just it's going to be uncomfortable or miserable for someone and we try and balance that around so everyone has that uncomfortable time at some point yeah and then when we talked earlier and obviously i found you through some of the promotions google was doing about the veterans that they have working at their company and we'll put some of the links to those there's some good videos of you kind of explaining your role and and we'll add those to the show notes but I wonder if you could just tell us briefly about some of the programs that Google has for veterans and some of the things they do to, you know, to kind of recognize and give you guys some and gals some space to do what you need to do. Sure. Right. First off, Google is fantastic and very proactive about that. They think about issues that before I can even think about them. So I do appreciate that. They've been a phenomenal company. It's very supportive in some of the actual things that they do. So first off, I get 30 days a year that essentially would be double dipped. So when I'm activated for um, like an extended drill, so it might be a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday drill. My Thursday and Friday, I'm still paid normally by Google, Mm -hmm. even though I can't work. If I'm activated for my AT, my annual training, which is supposed to be 15 days, usually it's tacked on to like a, a monthly drill on each end. So then it ends up being longer. That's also covered. So what's great about Google is they don't have to do that. There's no requirements right. for them to do right. that. But they do do that and they make it very simple. We also within Google, we have a internal employee support group called VetNet. And VetNet is an organization of veterans. You can be of any nationality from any you know military of any country, and then also our allies, so people who just support the, the veteran community. And it's mm-hmm. a very, very big group. It's something that I can go to for problem solving. It's something I can go to to vent. It's something I can go to for networking. It's a community. And with that community, there's a bit of inherent trust because they're you know, people that just, they feel like they're of the same cloth and same values and background. So it's very easy to connect and with that, other things that Google does do is on the um, on the recruiting side, there's a lot of things that, you know, legally you can't target or not target. But Google does have efforts to make sure that the veteran population is represented at Google. It's very important. And whenever I've had many opportunities, actually, to go to different recruiting events for Google, representing Google and talking to veterans. But I do want to point out that, that Google does this. It's not meant to be charity to the veteran right. community. It's actually meant to be a business decision that Google views veterans and veteran talent as a business imperative for them to have because yeah. they see veterans 
as smart as people with different experiences and with that moral courage and you know strong strong leadership and that's a huge value add to any company so they do have that they also have they support things like resume writing seminars for veterans they'll host those support coaching and mentoring at networking events for people who are going through interviews and the really cool part about that is for them it's not even about landing the job at Google it's about advancing that veterans chances anywhere so mm-hmm. hey if you want to come to google you know all the better for us but if you just want to help improve the way that you interview the way that you write and uh, present yourself on a resume we host those things because we want to give back to the veteran community yeah it sounds certainly it's above and beyond and uh, hopefully some of the folks that wear a uniform of that organization are putting Google in for the ESGR awards and making sure that they get some recognition uh, in return. I always ask, so this podcast is largely driven at the skills that veterans have, the things that they learn in uniform and how they apply to the business world. You're a bit unique in that you're a guard guy, so you're still serving in uniform even as you progress in your civilian career. As I'm talking to you today and listening to some of the, the examples that you've brought up, I've got to think the skills that you pick up at Google probably also add value to your career in uniform. Do you find that to be true? I think it's entirely true. I think that, so what you're saying, I I agree with 100%. I think that normally people think about how the military benefits the civilian employer because of all the skills and training, discipline, leadership, responsibility, accountability. But it's actually when you're in the guard, when I come back to the guard as an intel officer specifically as well, my job is to do a lot of analysis and to help, you know, take large bodies of information to find meaning, to also like take a very nebulous, ambiguous situation and then help the commander and the command team have some direction and, and find ways to interpret it. And that's what I do every day at Google. And another thing about Google is the my colleagues I work with, it couldn't be more international. Google as as a company, people move countries all the time. I actually just relocated this year from Singapore, where I was for the last year and a quarter. But being with different people, different backgrounds, different experiences is just, it enriches the way that you problem solve all the more because you get to see how different people approach problems, um, Mm -hmm. how they frame problems and how they do different types of modeling to solve. And so with COVID, as an example, my response with my team with COVID was the exact same response that I would have done at work, which is taking a lot of data points, finding ways to weight it, building different models out, looking at the, applying the models retroactively to see if they hold true. This whole level of sophistication that the army doesn't teach me, that I've learned you know, either mm-hmm. through business school or, or mostly on the job. And I'm mm-hmm. able to then bring that capability to my team at Google. And then I teach all of my analysts how to do this stuff. So it's mm-hmm. it makes us a really kind of unique Intel shop. Yeah, that's awesome. There's a symbiotic relationship. You get me all fired up too. Like I mean, Google's obviously a you know world-class organization, but it's really interesting to hear all of the different things that they're doing and how the things you learn there are feeding your military career and the things in your military career are feeding your your job at Google. Let's um we're getting pretty far along in this, so we're gonna start to bring it to the close. But I, I would like to ask you about you know, for someone that's listening, whether they're active duty or in the guard or in the reserves, and they're thinking about trying to get into technology and work for a company like Google, or maybe one of the other ones out in Silicon Valley or any, really anywhere around the country, what advice would you have? So I guess I'd say that to first take stock in, in inventory of why you want to join those particular companies or go into that industry, the more narrow your focus is, the easier it'll be for you. When I talk with friends who say, hey, I want to join Google, And I say, well, what do you want to do? And they say, literally anything. The problem is 
that there are already Google receives like 3 million applications a year for, you know, thousands of spots. So it's saying you want to do anything. It's really hard to fit someone in that. And there's probably really, really qualified people in the roles you want. If you want to go to a particular company, what I'd say is learn about the roles. Everyone posts the requirements online for a role. If you know what the requirements of the job are, both like the minimum qualifications, but also preferred. And then you do that, again, honest inventory of what your skill sets are to see how do I match up. Yeah, um, That's a, a super important first step just for your own expectation management. And then also you can see what are my shortages. If I know that I want to go be a program manager in this particular industry or this particular company, what are they expecting me to have? And how can I use the time that I have remaining in uniform to close that gap? Uh, because yeah. it's just not realistic to ask people to sacrifice on skills when there's so many people that are really qualified. So you need to really approach the company you want to work for with your best foot forward. Find out which roles you are the most qualified for, that you're the, the most of a shoe in for. Mm -hmm. um, and then once also you're in the company, do you know that most companies, especially a company like Google, have internal mobility. I'm in my sixth role at the company. I've been with the company for seven years. So we move around a lot. So yeah. don't overly index on what your end goal is, do focus on what is going to get me in there so that I can then prove myself and then have room to grow. That's super important. And then the other thing is relying on your own network as well, finding you know who are people that work at that company that I can connect with. Ideally, someone who can vouch for you. Best case scenario, you want to go be a program manager at Google and one of your buddies from prior service, he or she is in that role now. You can connect with them, not just for the purpose of them referring you and being able to vouch for you, but for you to learn about what are the skill sets that are going to make me successful? You know, let's, let's have that honest conversation that the two military people can have. So I know what, what do I need to do to make this dream come true? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's good advice. If someone listening, a veteran listening has a question, would like to find you online, connect and pose a question to you. Is there, um, is there a place that they can find you online? Sure. On LinkedIn, I'm there, Nathan Iglesias, and I do get messages. All I'd ask is, you know, in your message, say, if you just lead with a veteran, I'm always happy. I believe that helping veterans is an honor. Um, I'm super privileged to get to work with brothers and sisters in the service. And um, so I, I definitely do want to help out anyone's career and journey. Yeah, that's great. We'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. And then I'm going to dig around on the Google career pages and find some of the veteran links. I found some already. I know there's more. We'll go find some, put some up there. If you have one specifically that you want to add, let me know. We'll put that in there. And then, um, you know, I just want to say, hey, thanks for coming on the show and the work that you're doing at Google and with veterans. And, you know, most importantly for your continued service in the Guard, you know, I, I know firsthand being an officer or senior NCO in the Guard can be really challenging at times. And it's especially important as, um, you know, the, the whole community has transitioned to that operational reserve. So, the work you do is really important and you really do make our country strong. So, you know, hats off and big salute to you. Thanks. Thanks for coming on, Nathan. Well, thank you, Frank. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for this platform that you've also created and supported. This is definitely such a huge value add to the veteran community. So really, really appreciate all your work and passion. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Boots About Business podcast. Please know you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you catch your podcasts. And while you are there, won't you leave us a nice review? It'll help the show and in turn help other veterans. Finally, if you know someone that's a veteran in business or is an entrepreneur with a story to share, hit us up using the contact form on the show's website. That's bootsaboutbusiness.com. That's all one word, bootsaboutbusiness.com. Until next time, I am your host, Frank Strong, out here. <laughs>